Hiya. You're back with the jewel case. Another week and another special guest. So you're here with me, John Darcy, and this week I'm chatting to my idol, my spirit guide. <laughs> He's taken me by the hand through my uh, first steps into experimental music uh, when I was but a lad. And uh, he's here with me now uh, to chat. And now I'm getting this really strange sense of deja vu. This is so weird. And I'm sure he'll be more than happy to talk about deja vu and all other things, uh, psychological and philosophical. It's Dr. Paul Stapleton uh, from Sonic Arts Research Centre. Say hi, Paul. Hi, hi, John. Uh, hi, <laughs> hi, hi, Dr. John Darcy. Oh, yeah. Re- recently minted Dr. John Darcy. Oh, thanks, thank thanks for having me on your show. So I've known Paul for about eight years and uh, Paul's actually a lecturer at Queen's and teaches experimental music, improvisation, uh, all manner of things. And uh, he always tells everybody the story of the, the first time that I really caught his eye, sort of, uh, because he was teaching a class. It was a critical listening class. Critical yeah. listening class. And, and so part of the, I think normally critical listening, you, you play music and they'd have to analyze it on the fly at, at the final exam. Uh, but one of the ones I dropped in just to see what kind of response we'd get was, was uh, Minor Threat. I forget which track. <clears throat> Most people wrote, oh yeah, that sounds like punk, or that's kind of, it's loud and horrible, or, you know, it's kind of, oh yeah, it's kind of gritty and anti-establishment. And, and you wrote this huge essay on Ian Mackay and the history of hardcore and Washington, D.C. and then like into Fugazi and... Yeah, it kind of stood out. It was just by chance that I actually knew that Minor Threat track, because if it hadn't been like any other <laughs> track, uh, I probably would have just bluffed and said it was, I don't know, Dick Dead Kennedys or something. <laughs> um, so since then, um, we've done, done lots of stuff together, but the, most, the, the biggest thing we do together is play fantasy basketball, and we'll talk a little bit about our shared love of basketball later. Yeah, that will come um, But first, we'll talk about the music, and underneath our voices, you're hearing Sunra, and what's that track, Paul? It's a call for all demons. Personal favorite of mine um, by Sunra is a um, space explorer, jazz, ninja, wizard. <laughs> we, are you listening words or describing who Sunrise? <laughs> <laughs> um, we did a there's an ensemble I direct at Queens um, called Cube or uh, with Steve Davis and we've been running that for the last yeah roughly about eight years as well. John, yeah. you've, you've played in it a few times, but only when I'm not there for some strange yeah, reason. Yeah, our, our sync has been out of sync. But uh, we we did uh, for well there was a big Sunrise centenary around his hundred hundred years of his birth. And the year before that, we were just kind of slightly ahead of the curve. We, we did a Sunra-themed performance as part of the Cathedral Quarter Arts uh, Festival at the MAC. We ended up doing parades at Culture Night and a bunch of other sort of different versions of it. But the band was looking at Sunra's music and trying to figure out new ways of interpreting it. So we had this sort of crunk, kind of southern hip-hop uh, version of Call for All Demons, the track you're hearing on now. You were slightly ahead of the curve on the whole Sunra explosion, because then every music fan who read like Q magazine got in the Sunra after that or something, you know, it was a massive Sunra um, celebration and centenary, everyone diving into their back catalogue, but you were ahead of the curve, like Sunra himself. Um, and actually, on your recommendation, I watched uh, a bit of that um, in the movie. Space is the place. Yeah, yeah. and oh, it's crazy. Yeah, it's a great one. It's very, yeah, sort of black exploitation kind of style, but 
with the um, story of Sun Ra coming from, from outer space to... Yeah, this fascination with space and jazz and Afrofuturism and everything, it's all tied in together. Uh, I actually wasn't meant to get to that show, the Sun Ra show at the Mac, but managed to make the last like 20 minutes of it. We were playing a gig in Letterkenny and I drove furiously back and we arrived in during like that, probably the funk breakdown of this tune or something and uh, everyone was seated but because we came in and we were, it was one of those horrible, awkward gigs where you walk in and the audience is to your left and the stage is to your right and you have to walk in past everyone. So the whole audience was sort of looking at us walk past while yous were dancing to Sunra on stage. And I think I ended up dancing to my seat because I felt so like, I can't just walk the only way to do it. while everyone else is having so much fun. And then it was a stage invasion at the end. Oh yeah, we eventually, well, we had some amazing sort of dancers, a couple of friends of mine. Um, uh, Venus and Natalie kind of stormed the st- stage, handed out handkerchiefs, pulled up people to dance, and we got everybody up to dance. I still have my special Sun Ra handkerchief. Yeah, but Sun, Sun Ra was, a, was quite an influence on me, not just his kind of approach to jazz and improvisation, but his kind of use of technology in a way that sort of maybe is less typical of how, how we kind of relate to te- music technology. You know, he was, he was quite a pioneer in developing new instruments at the time as well and and had a sort of critical approach to technology which was really interesting uh, sort of an, an alternative approach like um, so that's kind of to do with also this sort of Afrofuturism thing that you're talking about it's like an alternative space program a different sort of way, way of um, imagining the past and the present and the future there's a sense of the outsider artist about Sun Ra's work especially because there's so many releases for a start and they're all on different labels and there's so much live bootlegs there you're talking about the improvisation and the free improvisation side of Sun Ra and that's a major part of what you do and today as part of what I what I what I always like to do with the dual case is you know dig into the CD collection and I'm so proud because I've come over to Paul's house to record this and he has littered the carpet with all of these CD cases and most of them are jail cases. No, no, most of them aren't jail cases. Oh no, no. Digipack, Digipack Invasion. <laughs> <laughs> I can see the sunrise in a jail case. Plastic. It's, a hor- it's a horrible name for a show, John. I've told you this before. <laughs> Landfills filling up with jail cases. <laughs> so I said that in the last show. Our, uh, our theme for today is a loose theme of improvisation and free improvisation and Paul's going to talk through a few of his influences, play a bit of his own music too and we're going to play a little game later uh, using John Zorn's Cobra cards and we'll explain that later but uh, Paul's putting me on the spot and making me improvise vocally. Yes. <laughs> Stay tuned here. That, so that, that, that will show up as well as sort of various tangents in the direction of basketball and chess and whatever else. Probably like even child protection law. But we'll come back to that. So what's next Paul? What, what, what do we have up next on our mix? I have quite an eclectic taste of stuff that dips in and out of what we would consider what we normally expect or relate to is improvisation. I thought I'd play some some older stuff first not to move chron- chronologically through the whole thing but um, maybe a bit of Django Reinhardt. Let's see. I'm just going to play a tiny blast. It was my granda who actually introduced me to Django Reinhardt and I think he, he told a bit of a butchered story about the finger missing or the, the part finger and for ages I thought he was missing the whole hand because my granda completely 
<laughs> you know, exaggerated the whole story. Yes. It's like, how does he play a guitar with one hand? <laughs> it's impressive that he gets away with it with the lack of, was it two fingers that he's missing? I forget. Yeah, um, it's, it's shaped his whole style. And I, I saw a couple of videos of, I guess, re- surfaced on YouTube now that we're in the YouTube era. Um, and I saw a couple of them. I had never actually seen video of him before. And uh, so interesting to see how the hand moves about the neck. So have you ever seen uh, Woody Allen film Sweet and Lowdown? No. No? No? Okay, so in that, Sean Penn plays the second greatest guitarist of all time. And there's the specter of Django Reinhardt through the, through the whole film, uh, although he does make an appearance or an actor playing him at one point. But yeah, he's, he, his sort of self-taught sort of gypsy jazz... Uh, style of playing, I, I think, was I mean, I, was one of my main instruments earlier on when I was younger. Was a guitar, uh, a guitarist first a violinist, then a guitarist, then I now play mostly weird sound sculptures. But some of that, um, but those sort of different instrumental practices still kind of in, influence how I play the new instruments I make and how I build the new instruments I make as well. But his his technique was, yeah, it was pretty raw, and I, I know he was working a lot with within sort of a particular folk tradition, but but his interpretation of that and his sort of way that he could malleably play with these sort of melodies was something that was, you know, fascinating to me when I was younger. Yeah, it's like a singular voice that's emerged from that folk tradition that is just a little bit off-centre, a little bit eccentric. That's what your practice is like as well, as far as I see it, that you've sort of gathered a bunch of um, influences together. Like, if you come over to your house, you could be playing DJ Shadow, sort of trip hop, or you could be playing really off kilter free jazz, or just like G funk. I don't. <laughs> Anything goes with Paul. <laughs> hip hop, yeah, hip hop, punk. Um, I was actually in a in a improvised punk band for a little while. Um, I had a um, this group called. Um, well, it was with a friend of mine, good friend of mine, Rachel Austin. And the drummer was Connor Berry, but Rachel and I made a pact of, of sorts that if um, ever the Tories got back in power, that we'd have to form a punk band. Uh, us both being in sort of punk bands when we were teenagers, but having not done much punk for since. And and lo and behold, the Tories got back into power. And we then formed a punk band, which we called uh, Rachel Discrimination. And I saw you one time playing in a real dive bar in Belfast. Oh, yeah. And this was the first time I saw you with your ponytail unleashed. Because ah. uh, your hair is usually tied up a bit, but this was full flow. Did you do uh, helicopters with your hair? Probably. <laughs> probably. It was kind of channeling my... And you're wearing a tank top and uh, guns out. <laughs> chains. I think we all had chains on. We, we When we were rehearsing, we are like, oh no, we have to do this now. We have to write a bunch of punk music. But we realized, actually, we could pretty much make up punk. It's a pretty simple format. We could pretty much improvise it on the fly. And all three of us were sort of improvisers uh, in various forms. And so uh, Rachel sketched down a few lyrics. We had a few tracks and we did one cover again, a minor threat cover, tying it back to you. But most most of the set was entirely just made up on the fly and just uh, locked in with changes with Connor. And Rachel was great at sort of ad-libbing, freestyling lyrics. And uh, we played it. We only played two gigs, one in Belfast and one in uh, Dungannon. Fun, or Fun Ganon, as I like to call it. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the only time you've been in Dungannon? I think, yeah. yeah. What it, was, it was a great, it was a very strange show. It was on a Saturday night, and the audience was mostly sort of 70-year-old or older men and 18 to 20-year-old women. That's what you get in these sort of uh, out-of-city, out of uh, just little town bars. Like, you know, you get the old regulars and then all the teenagers who just want to, you know, like 
have their weekend and maybe get out of the house that's not the park uh, and then they have these really strange lineups of gigs like who was who else was on that bill so it was part of this tour by this French band called So's the Sun friends of friends of Rachel's who good friends of mine now as well um, and so we, we played both the Belfast gig and the Dungan gig in support for them um, but it was a lock-in and we were there till like four in the morning and our and our um, the guy that booked the gig Kieran Sherry a friend of mine uh, had to drive us back at four in the morning which was quite amusing um, but yeah, it went down surprisingly well we, for you know, Don Gannon on a Saturday night. And there was no recordings made of this? This was a completely transient experience? Yeah, yeah it was just temporary, yeah, and then gone. <laughs> There's lots of rumors and legends about, you know, nudity and other and violence and stuff to do with racial discrimination but you know those those are those are all just kind of folklore and legend no. I think it's good though and then you can every time you tell the story you can add a little bit to it you can embellish the story I, I sort of feel like that's what you do with the essay story when you talk about how well I talked about my thread it gets a little bit better every time like I knew their whole discography <laughs> Um, so then you, that was your punk experience and actually I've seen a picture of you on Facebook I'm trying I, I lied there I said the only time I've seen you with the hair undone was at that gig but I've also seen you with the hair undone and a slash from Guns N' Roses-esque top hat on standing oh, yeah. on a cafeteria table yeah that's I think I was like 16 years old at Esperanza High School in California oh dear uh, <laughs> pains me to think of those days um, but yeah I was in I think I was in a um, sort of goth glam industrial band called Rapunzel, but also like a, uh, a sort of coffee shop trio, which was acoustic guitar, clarinet, and female vocals, and a few other weird sort of bands. So I've always kind of been working in eclectic circles, and um, it was interesting to see how improvisation came into to those as well. Like, I mean, it's definitely was, this, was composed, structured music, but there was always a bit of chaos happening in, in both those scenarios, which kind of gave it it's sort of liveliness and, you know, reason to do it live, basically. We'll talk a little bit about that because improvisation, some people think, is uh, just making it up as you go along, um, completely Out random. of nowhere, yeah. Um, and this idea of free improvisation, um, where it just maybe just comes right at the moment. But a lot of your work is thinking about how that's not necessarily the case because how can something just come out of nowhere at the moment it's all built on the context and your experience as a player absolutely so there's I think it's more and more recognised these days like that there's a misconception or a sort of mysticism attached to to um free improvisation in particular but any form of improvisation that it somehow comes out of nowhere it's some just making it up as you go along off the top of your head um it, it lacks sort of any intellectual rigour and it and even there's um, improvisers themselves who've been perpetuating this myth in different forms. Uh, Derek Bailey talked about non-idiomatic improvisation, somehow a form of improvisation that that escapes any sort of idiomatic relationship to any sort of other genre. Or, and I remember Evan Parker, when he came and played at Sark, and um, some, someone asked him about this, and he said, I think uh, Derek Bailey missed the, the Derek Bailey idiom. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing, because if you're outside of all of the little genre bubbles, well, you're just creating a new one, surely, from your if you're dependent on your practice. Yeah, so I think more and more there's, and this is definitely how I think about it as well, is... You know, improvisation is rooted in your own personal history, your relationship to traditions, um, you know, your relationship with your instrument, your environment, the other people in the room, the history that you have together there as well. 
Um, so like personal and cultural histories and, and it's constrained by all those things, but it's actually not trying to just replicate those things as well. So there's this kind of paradox um, where it's, it is sort of making it up as you go along in some ways, but richly informed by lots of other dynamics and relationships and traditions. Uh, and I think it's important to recognize improvisation as a skilled practice, as a sort of, as not, as not something that's just spontaneous entirely. Because if we understand improvisation as a skilled practice, we can start to see how it actually informs, like improvisation informs other ways that we relate to other human beings in other fields as well. Um, sure. So, you know, how we make creative decisions, the role of intuition in that, you know, the relationship to anticipation, listening, empathy, adaptability. So more and more I'm interested in this kind of notion of skillful adaptability as as something that's crucial within lots of different fields. I'll probably talk a bit more about that later. But one um but we should play something else, John. I think we're talking a lot. Yeah, let's uh well we've had Django Reinhardt there. So what what logically moves on from that? Oh, Lou, let's improvise. Yeah. <laughs> well, I put it all on the floor so that I wouldn't, you know, it's not in any order. There's a bunch of music on CDs all over the floor. Um, wouldn't mind playing a little bit of um, Travis uh, Laplante or Laplante. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, but it's a guy that I saw play in San Francisco a number of years ago. Um at the uh, the luggage store gallery, it's part of a music series that I've been running there for a long time, and I've played out a few times myself. Yeah, the first person that was playing at the gig when we walked in was Trevor Dunn, who's an amazing bass player. Um, he's based in New York, plays a lot with John Zorn and other people like that. Then the next act was this guy Travis, and I'll play you a song of his called "Heart Protector." I remember being quite moved moved by this just solo saxophone um, using some extended techniques that I've heard in other players as well uh, uh, sort of multiphonics and getting all these different sort of harmonics and unintentional sounds that weren't the saxophone wasn't necessarily designed initially to produce mm. um, I'm quite interested in these types of extended techniques one that I like to listen to a lot is Colin Stetson uh, and he plays all these sort of undulating rhythmical patterns. Maybe we can hear a little bit of that now too. Mm-hmm. 
plays all these undulating rhythmical patterns that sort of become one sound nearly. He also does these sort of long drawn out multi-tombral um, guttural things, you know, really deep bass saxophones that also just then plays these really intricate rhythms that then other things start to emerge and you start to hear different melodies throughout what is essentially just a looped riff. Like in Belfast, we've got a bunch of great saxophone improvisers like Francisca Schroeder at Sark. And uh, actually, you have a project where you collaborate with a saxophonist. Yeah. Or a saxophonist. A saxophonist, <laughs> even, yeah. Yeah, one of, the, one of the projects I have at the moment, it's an ongoing collaboration um, with Simon Rose, who's uh, an English baritone and alto saxophone player uh, who's currently based in Berlin. Uh, we met at Sark during a project uh, which was being directed by Evan Parker involving a bunch of different improvisers from around the world called Call Them Improvisers. We were put together in a smaller group and we played all day together. We didn't really talk ever, we just played. And we said, oh yeah, we should." that was nice, there were some good connections there. He, uh, I was playing, a, I just created this new instrument called the Bonsai Sound Sculpture, or the Boss. Um, this is back in 2010. It was one of the, another one of my instrument building collaborations with um, designer, furniture designer maker Neil Fawcett, who's based in Preston at the University of Central Lancashire. Um, and this was an air portable sound sculpture, so something that I could actually pack down. I used, so I built other things with Neil, like the, the MISS or modular sound sculpture, which is, fills up half a room. It's designed for like eight people to play simultaneously. Um, which is it's the first time I saw you play was in the Sonic Lab in the Sonic Archery Center, Sark, and you had all these metal boxes, or just so much metal. It was like a Ramstein gig. <laughs> and uh, like Lars Ulrich drum kit set up. Yeah. <laughs> you're crawling through the sculpture and like booing things, um, tapping on things, hitting things, and uh, all, all of these really rich tones coming out of it. And so that was amazing, but you're saying it wasn't quite portable for the touring musician. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I, I can only collaborate with people if they came to me, you know, or, you know so that's, that's not a good way of, kind of developing a performance practice. Um, it was it was great. I mean, I, I originally designed it for, for ensembles to play, but yeah, so I played all day, said, hey, we should do more of that. Where do you live? Oh, Berlin. Okay, well, I'll look you up next time in Berlin. So I went to visit a friend out there uh, and thought, all right, I'll go chat and, and realized that we hadn't really said more than a few words to each other the whole time he was in Belfast when we were playing and we actually had all these other kind of overlaps and, and interest and, and connections. He's He was at the time finishing up a PhD um, looking at improvisation and education and interviewing quite a lot of interesting improvisers. Uh, so we actually had, had really similar research interests, uh, we found, not just sort of playing interests. Uh, and we walked uh, around Berlin and decided, okay, well, next time in town, we'll, we'll record an album. And so the album record, we recorded is called Fauna. Um, it was released on PF Mentum, which is uh, Jeff Kaiser's uh, really interesting label. Uh, in San Diego, in California. Oh yeah, should we play a little bit from this? For sure, yeah. Thank you. 
it was recorded in 2011 and actually oh, wow. uh, released in 2013. Uh, it's getting some nice reviews. Um, but yeah, that's the last CD I produced. Um, producing CDs seems less and less like a, a thing that I, I want to be doing. I, I, I mean, even though I really like the, the, the format of an album, but like releasing things in tangible media is, is tricky. And if I'm going to release probably um, more th- like tangible media, I'll probably be on things like vinyl or cassette or and that where the actual artifact is, is kind of something really special in itself. Although I do, I do like, did like how the CD turned out as, a, as, a, as an object as well. Yeah, and the, the cover art is designed by Mathilde Mirles, who is also actually one of your PhD students at SARC. And, but aside from her work with sound, she's a really good graphic designer as well. And you've sort of just grabbed her to design all your sort of <laughs> Yeah, she's, 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 been, she's been really great um, for, for quite a few different projects that we've been involved with. But yeah, also an amazing sound artist. So check out her work. Actually, you should get her on the show at some point. Yeah, I definitely will have Matilda on as a guest at some point. When she comes back from Lisbon, she's away. I'm just jealous because um, Lisbon, not Lisbon, not Lisbon. Yeah, see, I, I'm from Lisbon. She's from Lisbon, and uh, one gets slightly better weather than the other. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a bit about your practice based at Sark, which you gave a little mention to earlier. And part of it is with the QUBE, the Cube Ensemble, um, which practice at the Sonic Lab. Uh, like every Tuesday and have done for the last oh must be like t- 10 years maybe or something well be- well before I was there I, it's, it's I think it's maybe even like a 20 year old ensemble I'm not exactly sure and I know Mike, Michael Alcorn used to be involved with it uh, I think Simon Winnie said he was involved at one point Pedro Rebello great colleagues of mine composers and players um and I, Steve Davis has been running it for about 10 years and I, I started working with Steve about eight years ago, and also with my co- former colleague Michael Gurevich, um, which is uh, how I first. Actually, I'm trying to remember what happened first. I'd heard of Cobra, this piece by John Zorn. It's a, it's a game piece, it's a way of structuring uh, improvisation um, through uh, a sort of somewhat complicated uh, series of cards and hand gestures and hats. And um, we'll talk a little bit about the details of that in a moment. But um, Michael had played Cobra with Mark Applebaum in the, in the Stanford Improvisation Collective, or SIC, uh, which is a, a class that Mark runs uh, there at, uh, at Stanford University in California. And Mark had got the score from John Zorn. I'd also, I'd, I've only met John Zorn once, and it was uh, during his, around his 50th birthday celebrations. Uh, in New York, and he still had the club Tonic going, which was his club before the um, the Stone, which is now his current club. And he uh, showed up that that day for for the gig, and they happened to be playing playing Cobra, which was amazing to see in action. And uh, a lot of the old original players, and I talked to him a little bit about the piece. And so um, uh, Michael used to direct it in Cube initially, and then when Michael left, I I took it over and. Um, we kind of use it every once in a while. As a, it's also a way of making people who haven't improvised before have an, have an inroad to kind of thinking on their feet and making and structuring decisions on the fly. But yeah, it sort of, um, in some ways, maybe helps to 
demystify the idea of improvisation as this genre-free zone. Um, and like you say, sort of people who maybe haven't improvised that much before, it's rule-based, it's like a game, and maybe that link to gamesmanship or game playing applied to music then can sort of make you realise, oh, improvisation is not just this sort of magic thing that only certain people can do, like anybody can get into it. Yeah, so it's a, it's a good training tool, if, and it's a good way of gelling an ensemble together for the, and like if it's all a bunch of new members. So it, it's something we pull out of the, the bag every once in a while. We most recently performed it. Um, we actually did a version of Cobra, but also Dark Cobra, um, which was, we designed a way of kind of communicating the cues that are on Cobra, but in the dark, which was really interesting. So we're still kind of building on that. I've also um, developed something based off of Cobra called Hydra, which is a way to, uh, which is a game piece for for lawyers, for for barristers, uh, and kind of uh, is it's a way of them to think on their feet and to kind of rethink the sort of dynamics and relationship within the courtroom as an extension of sort of moot court training. So yeah, slight tangent there. So we're listening to a bit of Cobra now, and this is a recording. I'm sure there's a bunch of recordings of Cobra. John Zorn's quite. He, he, he likes to take a certain amount of control over this piece. So there is, this is the only official recording of Cobra. Everything else is unofficial performances. The score itself is hard to get a hold of. There's like the basic instructions, which I think you can find online now, but there's a number of other pages with detailed instructions. And I think everybody develops their own sort of house style of it as well. I've heard some great renditions. There's one, I forget the name of the Japanese band or ensemble that did a version of Cobra, which again, brings out the unique personality of the group that's playing it, but the this is this one that we're listening to now is is a version of Cobra um, that John Zorn released on his label Zadik. features um, Trevor Dunn, that bass player I was talking about before, uh, as well as uh, Mark Feldman, who's an amazing violinist, and quite a few other interesting people. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna try an experiment now. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> uh, so just uh, again, um, we've we sort of mentioned what the idea of Cobra is, but whenever I've seen it, I arrived in at a concert and he was doing this piece, uh, and it was basically Paul standing in the conductor's position. Um, but not really like waving a stick as a classical conductor yeah, would do. Yeah, not a baton. He was just uh, holding up these cards and the cards have numbers or symbols, different letters and they all have a specific meaning and whenever he held up a card the ensemble would immediately like change what they were doing or certain players would jump out and do solos or they would get quiet or get louder or speed up, slow down type things 
and uh, I, I was trying to work out why or how or how this whole system worked and then after chatting to people about it for a while then they, they explained this whole idea of Cobra um, so Paul can you maybe run through a couple of the cards and what they mean yeah yeah so we'll talk to you about uh, we're going to try out a few cards Cobra is normally for an ensemble of at least, like at least sort of eight or more people uh, but we're going to try one man Cobra with John here in a moment I've done this once before actually uh, with Adnan Marquez Bourbon uh, who's based at Sark as well as a postdoc but um, this, the sound of it as well so John was talking about the, kind of these kind of changes it's very much it's, it's very Zorn sort of sound going back to his work with Naked City where they kind of hopped across different sort of genres like it would be a few bars of country western and a few bars of thrash metal and then a few bar- almost like you'd change channels on a TV like when you're that's hopping. what it sounds like it sounds like you're just tuning through a radio and you suddenly hear classical music and then you flick and it's country and western and then it's hip hop so, so it can it can do that with genres, or it can, you know, it's the idea is rapidly changing kind of sounds. Most of them happen on a downbeat, and so yeah, I, my role at the front is is very different than a traditional conductor. And actually, the name of it is um, in, in the piece is the prompter. Um, but actually, most of the cues that that I'm putting up are actually in response to uh, hand signals that the that musicians are giving me. So most of the actual um, dynamics and shifting of the piece are, are from instructions directly from the musicians and you get lots of different people with different personalities you get some real jerks that kind of are constantly trying to kind of cut off other people and move things on you get some other more passive people but I think Zorin said it takes a village to create to create a whole sort it's of it's a whole ecosystem it's like an and ecosystem in micro very, society yeah. yeah it's representative of politics yeah. and the way we relate to people <laughs> just through this musical action yeah so again this is why I've thought about how it might work in other contexts like um, like sort of you know courtroom as well um, but yeah one of the cards is called runner and if a musician calls this card I put up it's just a big R on a yellow background and on the downbeat you would start a solo so John if I put this card up on the downbeat you would you would jump into a solo but bear in mind I'm the soloist there's no one else so I'll ju- I'll just get on with my own thing when I see that card yeah yeah so that's how we're gonna start our, our one in a minute if I if John or I really like something that's happening and we want to like bank it like you're like recording a sample of it to bring back later there's these memory cards uh, one is there's actually three of them memory one two and three and they, those are sort of sounds that are store or stored to bring back later so if, if I do something nice or funny or whatever that Paul thinks, oh, we'll bring that back again, he can log it in or store it in memory bank one, two, or three, and then when he shows me that card again, I have to remember what I did. Yeah, yeah, that's the challenge. That's the challenge, you know, and it's even challenge with a larger group. You need, you need to know how what you did fit in with what other people were doing as well. But it's one of the, one of the most interesting parts of the game, I think. Um, there's uh, volume cards, which is crescendo or decrescendo, I Yep, so whatever, depending on which way you hold that, I have to get louder or quieter. Yeah, yeah. there's uh, one called Music Change, which means uh, you're doing something now on the downbeat, do something dramatically different. So dramatically change what you're doing. We'll hear how that sounds in a moment. So that one's tricky, because I've got to think of like a new style or something to just pluck out. There's, there's another one called Events. Usually this is like one, two, or three events. It's kind of a weird one to do as a soloist, but um, this could be anything from Happy Birthday to all of Beethoven's ninth to just uh, a nursery rhyme to uh, you know it, this is me plucking a musical memory out of my head yeah. um, and just going with that well, it could it, beyond music as well it could just be speech you know it could be a story it could be a 
a famous poem, you know, whatever, whatever you want with that. And uh, the piece can end in, in one of three ways, and this is the simplest. It's just a big card. It's just a solid black rectangle. And on the downbeat, it just stops. So the black card, I just finished. Yes. And you're going to tell me when. <laughs> so that's Cobra. So what we're going to do is I have a little book that Paul's given me called The Official Rules of Chess, published by the Macmillan Chess Library. And uh, I'm just going to read The Official Rules Laws of Chess and you're going to hold up the cards and I'm going to improvise how I read uh, in different ways yeah, following this, the Cobra instructions. This is particularly good source material um, for this, this talk because I, I'm, I'm really into chess. Actually, the main person I play chess with is my good friend, Ken Lowe, or Kenneth Lowe, as he sometimes is known. Shout out, Ken. Uh, Ken, yeah. Actually, I'm wearing his um, T-shirt, which is one of his pieces of art. Lucky feet, happy shoes, yeah. It's, it's basketball-related. But chess is, I think, a particularly interesting example of, of improvisation like the rules are known to a certain extent but once you get to the middle game it's just it's all tactics it's all kind of things that you, similar experiences that you've experienced before but you got to find new ways to interpret what you're seeing in front of you in that moment on the fly and even computer the best computer the fastest computer in the world are still still haven't mastered that middle section mm. um so yeah, let's let's try this out, John. Let's Cobra. So you're gonna start with now. This is this is a challenge to you, the listener, to try and work out what cards Paul's been playing because yeah, you can't see any of this. So <laughs> so at the minute he's got in his hand the yellow R card, which is the runner card, and that's just sort of do a solo. So that's gonna be my sort of baseline card to just I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna interpret the R as read basically, yeah, and I'll read, and depending good. on the other cards, I'll then morph into different. Ideas. Good adaptability there. But enough talk. Let's do this. Ready? The official laws of chess and other FIDE regulations, Federación Internacionales de Eches, Collier Books, Macmillan Publishing Company, New York. Contents. Laws of chess, page 11. Laws of chess as adopted by the 19th FIED Congress with amendments approved by FIED Congress. Approved by amendments. FIDD Congress approved by amendments. The laws of chess cannot cover all the possible solutions that may arise. The FIDE Chess Congress with amendments. The FIED Chess Congress. The laws of chess cannot cover any all possible solutions that may arise during a game. Or nor can regulate all administrative. I'm sailing away. Set an open course for the emergency. The 1984 FIED Congress with amendments approved by the FIED Congress. <laughs> Oh, oh, I'm sailing away. out the two-detailed rule might deprive the arbiter of his freedom of judgment and thus prevent him from finding the solution to a problem dictated by fairness. FIDE appeals to all chess players and federations to accept this. I'm sailing away. Set an open course. The FIED Congress with amendments. The FIDD Congress with amendments. Any chess federation that already operates or wants to introduce a more detailed rules is actually free to do so, provided that they do not conflict in any way with the official laws of chess. 
Nice one, John. Wow. Okay, I might edit that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> that was really good. I thought. No, most people when they when they're doing Cobra, especially if they haven't done it many times, it's it's an incredibly stressful kind of thing to do, and you can't actually you have no actually actual sense of what you actually are doing and how it actually sounds. But it sounds great because the game forces it into that structure, and, and it just works. When you listen back, you'll be surprised. It was better than you thought it was. So that's John's Orange Cobra. I, I, that's one of the foundation pieces, I guess. It's one of the one of the big hitters in terms of improvisation. Well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it. Yeah, I don't know if it's foundational, but it is one that's sort of out there a lot, and a lot of people play it. And it often, you know, it often doesn't. It's, it doesn't always work musically, but I still think it's a really great piece for sort of a large ensemble who's just getting to know each other with mixed backgrounds, um, you know, as a way of kind of gelling that ensemble and, and making sense of things. Um, but Cube does all kinds of different things as well, so like I said, we did the Sunraw stuff, uh, Cobra, we've um, we did, did a piece, again, by Mark Applebaum called The Metaphysics of Notation, which was at the Ulster Museum, um, so took over the entire ground floor of the Ulster Museum, these large pictographic scores, graphic scores that could be interpreted in different ways that we spent a long time working out, and so the audience were free to kind of wander around the museum, and musicians would pop up in different places around these scores, and it was kind of a bit like a happening 1960s happening. But, but Cube, um, I think Steve and I's approach to Cube um, is also influenced by quite a bit other other sort of more kind of the canon of improvised jazz ensembles. Um, particularly, I think, sort of, um, Mingus had a band um, uh, that I think influenced some of our approach to some of Cube's um, music. Um, and there's an album called uh, The Black Saint and the Center Lady, which I'm going to play a little bit for you. Charles Mingus here from the Black Saint and the Center Lady, uh, solo dancer, first track. Uh, just to kind of keep it, keep it real, uh, and play some of the Jimi Hendrix experience. Just float your little mind around, something like a. Thing about Jimi Hendrix is. You know, some interesting recordings exist out there, but the most interesting are, for me are always the, the like just the live recordings when he's actually just sort of going for it. He's not just playing these tunes, but he's really kind of ripping a, a ripping a vortex into these tunes in different ways and going these extended uh, solo, extended technique guitar. Um, played the electric guitar like no one had ever seen at that point. Opened up um, loads of possibilities for other musicians, and he was a big influence when I was younger. I was going to play you one of the songs from live at Winterland. Let's go with Spanish Castle Magic.
Knock it off, you crazy kids! So, sorry about that. Had to had to get a bit of a board weevil um, from Bug Brand, uh, Tom Bugs in Bristol. You're just saying words now. Uh, <laughs> board weevil, I guess. Is it... <laughs> Sorry. So that's like a little circuit board that Paul has with a battery in it and a speaker, and he's just waving it around. It's like <laughs> it's a pro- programmable crackle box kind of thing, you know. <laughs> people are into crackle boxes. Um, shout out crackle box fans. So, but actually, the real reason I got you over here, as as nice as music is, uh, was to just get you to try and do a trade with my fantasy basketball team. So let, let, let's chat a bit of basketball before we go. Um, yeah. Because so- actually, we're talking about jazz and improvisation, and like the classic motto is that basketball is jazz and physical movement. Yeah, I, I, I see, and I've thought this for a long time, there's strong parallels with music and improvisation in music and improvisation in, in, in basketball particularly. So, you know, very f- sort of fast-moving, dynamic uh, interactions. Explicitly, Phil Jackson had something called the triangle off- offense. Phil Jackson was the coach of the Lakers and the Bulls. The coach that led Michael Jordan to like the legendary six championships. But more importantly, the Lakers, like Shaq and Kobe, <laughs> and, and then Kobe again. You know, five, five rings, California. Five, five rings, Kobe Bryant. So and the triangle system was all based on this idea of three core players who stand in a sort of triangle and are like just movable parts, and and it depends on their flow in the offense. Um, yes, it, it's it, it's very different than running set plays. Um, it's more about being responsive and adaptive and and kind of uh, seeing the defense and, and adapting to that on the fly, which is uh, this is very similar to how musicians, uh, improvising musicians interact as well. Um, and um, there was actually an article in the New York Times recently on, on Steph Curry, who's currently um, probably the best player in the game in my he opinion. He is cooking up a storm. This is, if you're not following the NBA, um, which you really should start, because it's a great game to watch. Um, Steph Curry plays for the Golden State Warriors. They won the championship last season, um, and they sort of came out of nowhere in a sense. They were building over a couple of years. Uh, they traded one of their marquee players, um, but in return they got an amazing sort of system and culture, a really good group of players who all are very adaptable. Uh, each player can just play multiple roles. They're all really great on defense, long arms, um, sweeping side movements, and their foundational uh, centerpiece player is Steph Curry, who is second generation NBA player but is like the best shooter we've seen in years probably uh, ever I think he's probably ever yeah he's shooting three pointers from basically like half court uh, like what what happens you know whenever a team makes a steal and does a big fast break most players will try to go for a dunk Steph Curry will just stop at the three point line actually about four feet off the three point line and shoot he'll just like shoot from half court nearly and get it in like 50% of the time but he makes it look effortless which is really interesting and it's the, the article in the New York Times I was talking talking about is the artistry of Steph Curry. They're interviewing um, Taras Dimitro, who's the um, principal ballet dancer in the uh, San Francisco Ballet, who was never a basketball fan before, but he's become one watching Steph Curry play. And there's there's a real sort of artistry, musicality. Um, you know, they talk about eff- effortless movement, body control, uh, innate artistic drive. Uh, pre-game routine he says as well it's about practice you, know, you can practice improvisation you can get better at being adaptive and 
and uh, Curry's an amazing, amazing example of that. It, the rhythmic, rhythmic dribbling as well. This is great. Like it talks about the musicality of the play as well. Um, but yeah, so John and I are in this um, this league, uh, this fantasy basketball league. You probably are familiar with fantasy football or some fantasy sports, where it's it, I guess it's kind of like gambling. You like making making like up playing the stock market. <laughs> In a, but you know, only me and Paul don't bet money. We bet burritos. Yeah, we bet burritos, which it's is more fun with food. It, yeah, it's I think you know, burritos in Belfast or Northern Ireland. It's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's not it's not a native delicacy, but it's all right, all but right. It, but it's but it's fast, you know, fast becoming a currency. You know, <laughs> our biggest rival actually is you may you may know him. He's he's the biggest cheese celebrity we have in Northern Ireland. It's Mike's Fancy Cheese, uh, Michael Thompson, and he's in our league as well. And he won the league last year. And this year, you know, he's looking like he's got it tied up pretty early. He makes ridiculous trades, which we all think look uh, really stupid at the time, but still help, somehow manages to trump us yeah. at the final hurdle. Yeah, it's depressing. Uh, but he, he, he might win, be the first to win back-to-back years in our fantasy basketball league. We've been doing this for, I don't know, how long have you been on, involved, John? You've been like five years? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a veteran now. <laughs> And to think it all started from a tweet uh, where I was watching the Lakers and the Magic one time and uh, saying that I was watching the NBA Finals and, and you, you saw that. You're like, there's another one. There's another person in Belfast who watches basketball late at night. Because it mostly, it most, well, the reason we got into fantasy basketball is that Ken and I got, like, I got, like, we were playing chess online and for some reason online I'd always beat him and we got bored of that and so we, we thought, let's try to find some other way to be competitive and we both love basketball, so got into that and you're quite evenly matched on it um, like you like trade years back and forth depending on who wins each year but but recent years Bas- you know Northern Ireland is is just killing killing it you know tell I you think- what this peace process has worked out we're really good at fantasy basketball now I won two years ago yeah Michael John won last so year. It's, it's you know Northern Ireland has had the cup for, for several years in a row you know? well, we need to get a physical object we need an actual cup even though the whole thing is fake fantasy digital we need a physical object for the winner. Sure, maybe maybe Mike can make us one out of cheese or something. Uh, I don't think that's going to work. It's, it's not going to last a long haul, is it? You can age cheese surprisingly <laughs> long, long amount of time. Well, I mean, before we before we actually go and make our trades, I think me and Paul are going to spend a couple of hours now looking at statistics, uh, looking at Excel documents and trying to decide who's going to win us the league. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I'd like to thank Paul for spe- spending the hour with me and sharing some really nice music. Um, Paul, any upcoming projects you'd like to share with people to keep an eye out with? Um, upcoming projects. Ah, so many. Um, you can check out what I'm up to more generally at my website, which is just uh, paulstapleton.net. Uh, there's a collection of lots of different projects, including stuff around Cube and, and Fauna, the, uh, the collaboration with Simon Rose that I played with previously. There's... Um, I'm hopefully going to be doing more playing. Um, there's a guy coming over from Berlin who's originally from Copenhagen named Adam Pulse-Melby, bass player and kind of technologist. And he's going to be doing a residency at Sark and, in March. Uh, we're going to be doing concerts later in the fall as well. Um, trying to get a tour together in Amsterdam with Simon Rose. Uh, I've got an exciting project, which would take far too long to explain, actually, so I won't. <laughs> <laughs> we'll street, street, so- street society it's improvisation architecture urban villages well this this project is um a real public art project uh, working with communities and uh, different parts of belfast um northern ireland 
and it sounds you told me about it over drinks the other night and it sounds really worthwhile really interesting uh, really inspiring actually so I I'm really looking forward to me working my way into weaseling my way into that project and hopefully hopefully getting involved so hopefully I'll, I'll be sharing a little bit more about that soon yeah um, Paul thanks again and what will we play out the show with what will we play out the show what do, uh, hmm so many things I haven't played that I intended to play, you know. That's the nature could, of improvisation. You know, let, let me just, you know, but that, actually that is, you know, you, you build up all these tricks and licks and different things you can play, and it's actually then about filtering those out. What's right for the moment? So what what is right for the moment, John? Is there anything that I, that, you know, I showed you? Oh, we I, didn't I play you Christian right? Markley. Yeah, okay, we could, we could go out with some Christian Markley. Let's, uh, well, actually, it's... Let's, let's go out with a doubleheader. Uh, let's go out with first... Some Christian Marclay, uh, play you a bit from more encores. He would cut up vinyl, so you chop different um, different records and put them, glue them back together in different ways to create sort of a cut up technique, a little bit sim- similar to like William Burroughs' cut up technique with literature. Him and um, Philip Yeck uh, was also kind of a particular influence on me. Part of my current instrument has a sort of little turntable attachment, uh, along with sort of metal resonance and strings. Um, and then perhaps one of the most interesting old school improvisation collectives or groups called AMM uh, from 1968 uh, from the album The Crypt. And I think at this point I'm going to have to go because I have to let my wife into the house. She's stuck outside in the cold there <laughs> All right, pizza. We'll, we'll get some uh, Christian Markley on and then some AMM after. Paul, thanks again. And I'll back, be back with you next week on The Jewel Case with me, John Darcy, on Lisbon 98, Bangor FM, FM 105 in Downpatrick. And if you search us on iTunes, we're there too. Night-night. Night-night.